The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Have you ever met someone great, someone renowned, and, and wonder and ask yourself, how did they become who they are? You can, you can read about people like Michael Phelps and all the achievements that he's accomplished, and then you actually start to look at his routine and his diet and his exercise regimen, and you, you realize that this person is completely dedicated and sold out to what he does. It, 12,000 calories a day, three to six hours in the pool every day, not to mention the fact that he's in the gym, and make sure, to make sure he gets at least eight hours of sleep a night, like this guy is disciplined. He has put in work to become great. If, if I find an author or meet a Christian leader that I really like, the first thing I do is I look up their education. Where did they go to school? Who trained them? Where did they go to church? Uh, because I think that if I understand the path that they took to get to this great place, maybe I can practice some of that myself and I could be able to teach like they teach, to equip as well as they equip, or to write as, um, as well as they write. When you think about great people and you think about the Bible and you put these two things together, one of the names that is always going to pop up, at least top five for anybody you ask, is going to be Moses. But we saw last week, he's not always cracked up to be in the beginning, right? How did he become so renowned? How did he become great? And, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, this is not a pathway to your own greatness. This is, we'll, we'll see what I mean by great throughout. I just offer that warning. But how did he become so renowned? And the answer is kind of complex. Because you see, last week, we found the people of God in Egypt suffering under the weight of their work, enslaved to the Egyptians, and their male children being murdered in accordance with Pharaoh's edict. So they cried out to God. They groaned, as it says in chapter 2. God hears their groans and he remembers, which means he acts towards fulfilling his covenant promises. And we saw that he was already doing this in the growing number of Hebrews. Despite persecution, they were filling the land, and especially in the way that he preserved one child's life. Moses, the one who was drawn out of the water. But like I said, we also found out that Moses is a little rough around the edges and cut him some slack. He's really a mixed bag of emotions. Am I Egyptian? Am I Hebrew? I'm raised in Pharaoh's household, but I, I come from the people that are out there uh, in hard labor. And one day he goes out and he sees the suffering of his people and he thinks that he knows what to do. So he kills an Egyptian taskmaster and it gets him nowhere. He has, run for, he has to run for his life, and outside of town, he gets into another predicament, ends up rescuing the, the, the Midian's priest's daughters from somewhat less than chivalrous shepherds, and in return, he wins Zipporah's hand in marriage. Him and Zipporah have a son named Gershom, which means sojourner, because this is, this is where we leave off with Moses. He feels like he's a sojourner in a foreign land. And what we get here is a picture of exactly what the chapter ends with. God is not blind. He sees what's going on and knows how to save his people. He is fully aware of the situation, and he is sovereignly orchestrating Moses' life to rescue his people from their slavery. So God is ready, but Moses isn't quite ready. He has some work to do. And in fact, when we find him today, he's hard at work. It's a different kind of job than what he probably imagined for himself growing up. 
Moses has quite the riches to, to rags story here, right? From Pharaoh's household to, to where we find it today. And it's funny because this job, this work could actually be some foreshadowing to what God will do with him in the end. See, he has a flock in the wilderness near the mountain of God. Does that sound familiar? He will end up doing the same thing, but in a completely different way once God calls him. So God calls, but he's not ready. How does he prepare? We begin reading in chapter 3 of Exodus, verses 1 to 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, just like any of us would say, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. What changes in Moses? What, how does he prepare for the, the call of God that he's going to receive? We see the first instance about to pop up, that Moses prepares for the call of God by encountering God's holiness. And all the ancient writers in, in the, the Christian church always talk about how Moses turned aside to see this great work of God and how you really do have to turn aside. You can't just expect to be going on about your way without taking the time to inspect what God has done, like to shake you out of your, your normal shepherding so that you can shepherd the people of God and do the work of God. He turns aside. He takes time and he checks out what is really the first miracle in Exodus. And, and I say that, and you might be kind of thinking of what's happened so far and thinking of Moses' life as a miracle, preserving it, and uh, despite persecution, the people filling the land. And yes, that is God's intervention, but it kind of happens in a, a more natural way. But this one is completely supernatural. A, a desert vegetation, shrub, bursts into flames, and you would think it's going to disintegrate down to ashes. But it's not... It's not consumed. And in this case, the picture is worth a thousand words. And a demonstration here is worth Moses' unwavering faith. Um, this sign is, in particular, is Moses' fiery introduction to God's holiness. The fact that God enters into the natural realm, even through something as ordinary as this desert vegetation, yet is not limited to the typical characteristics of the natural realm, shows exactly what kind of God Moses is dealing with. But that's, that's not all. We, we know, verses 4 to 6, this, this bush begins to speak. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Do not come near. This, this is really what the first thing God says to him. Do not come near. It's not because God doesn't want Moses near. If that was the case, um, why would he have chased him down in the wilderness to call him out? No, this is for Moses' own good. This is a protective measure. We see how coming near to God in an unworthy state later on in the Bible is a dangerous thing. The Ark of the Covenant that's touched in an unholy manner. Uh, 
when Moses has to veil his face to speak to God, when the, there's a, a curtain in between the Holy of Holies and the people, a separation from God, is not because God doesn't want us near him. It's because God is protecting us until he has provided the proper pathway to him. Don't come near and take off your sandals. Take them off your feet. And we are not, we're not going to do that today. I think that's weird. And if people haven't cut their toenails, it can be awkward. Um, so what, what's the point of taking off your, your sandals? Well, it was, it was just a custom. It's, it's the same way as sometimes you go into a place of worship or a, a reverent place today and you would take off your hat. Um, it's just a sign of respect and reverence. And there's something special about this place, and it should not be entered into flippantly. But what's so special about it? Well, the, Lord, the Lord says, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I know the burning bushes here and everything, but I'm wondering if Moses is thinking what I would be thinking. This is holy ground? Wilderness? Sand? Like, my sheep are defecating all over the place? What, how was this holy ground? And I can hear God say, no, Moses, it's not holy. Uh, it's, not the, it's not the actual ground, the physical substance that's holy. The ground is holy because I'm here, because I make it holy. And the first step in understanding what holiness is, is to understand that holiness is not something we gain for ourselves. Holiness is not something that we're just born into. Holiness is something that God makes you. It's a work of God in your life. And depending on your translation of the Bible, it's, it's interesting. This is either the first or second time we ever see the word holy appear in Scripture. If you look in Genesis 2, the very beginning, uh, God finishes creation, and on the seventh day, he rests. And it says, when he rests, he blessed it, and he made it holy, or sanctified it. Um, that's the verbal form of holy. Here is the first use of the, the word holy as an adjective, holy ground, in describing it. But what's, what's the commonality here? Something is made holy when it is set apart for God and his purposes. Something is holy because it has been set apart specifically for God and his purposes. In this case, it is holy ground because it has been set apart for God's purposes to meet with Moses. But in both cases, God is the one who makes it holy. I think it just... Quickly, 1 Corinthians, we just started. How did, or we just ended. How did the book start? It was written to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, right? The saints sanctified in Christ Jesus. And that word sanctified is the same word, to be made holy. The saints are those who have been made holy. How? In Christ Jesus. Holiness is not a work you do to yourself. It is a work of God in your life. Moses' response to this holy revelation, this theophany of God, he's afraid. He's afraid to look at God. I remember in college, I went to a church that was singing this song, I think by the, the band Jesus Culture, and it, it was called Show Me Your Glory. And you might, you might remember, it was very popular. And all these people around are asking God to reveal his glory to them. And I was, I mean... I'm further along now, but I'm still not very far along in my biblical knowledge, but I just understood the glory of God to be something very intimidating and something very fearful. And I remember listening to all these people saying, show me your glory. And I was saying like, I'm not so sure. 
I'm not so sure I want that. Like, not that I don't want you, God, but I just don't, if you really do show us your glory, like, I'm done. I'm completely done for. When Moses realizes who he is speaking with, he hides his face. He's starting to get it. He's starting to know God as holy. And the first reaction should be that of fear and reverential awe. This is the first step in preparing for the call of God in his life, is encountering God's holiness. But it doesn't stop there. Let's read 7 to 12. Then the Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the first step was encountering God's holiness. The second step to Moses' preparation for this call is understanding God's presence. God, God tells him, I have seen, I have heard. And in Moses' mind, God probably hasn't been around, or at least not very active. And God is letting Moses know that he's been there. He actually has seen. He actually has heard. That's the reason why he's talking to Moses. That's the reason why Moses' life was preserved. The plan that God has is well underway, and it includes Moses going to Pharaoh, having him release the Hebrew people from their bondage. But all of a sudden, the call gets really real for Moses when he starts to understand the part that he's going to play. He's going to go to Pharaoh and somehow release the people of God from their bondage. And what's his first response? The famous response of Moses, the famous response of most people who get called by God. Who am I? Who am I? I mean, I think of Isaiah. Like, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. How could, I, how could I do what you're calling me to do? Moses doesn't actually need God to remind him of who he is. He knows who he is. This response comes from the fact that he knows who he is. Right? Who am I? It's kind of Moses' way of saying, you've got to be kidding me. Me? It's pretty much rhetorical, which is good because God doesn't really answer the question. He, he doesn't answer the question. What, what does he say? I'll be with you. Okay. Who am I? Oh, okay. The, the one that you will be with. That's my new identity. To, to understand God's presence with me is how I prepare for the call of God on my life. Which is so interesting, considering the way that most people would answer this question on social media. Someone posts something or tweets something and says, I'm going to do this, and I'm just wrestling with confidence. And what's the number one thing we would always say? And it doesn't come from a bad place. It's just kind of misleading. You're awesome. You could do it. It's going to be great. 
Like, believe in yourself. Like, don't doubt your abilities. But that's not, Moses obviously needs encouragement, but that's not the encouragement that God gives. The encouragement that God gives is, Moses, I will be with you. Just think about that. Next time you feel God calling you to do something and you need reassurance, don't look for it in platitudes of your achievements or your abilities or, or, or whatever it might be. Ask to be reminded of God's promises to be with you. That's what ultimately prepares us. Think of our benediction we read every week. Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. I have all authority and power. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sounds a lot different than what we would tell most of our friends needing encouragement. Acts 1, 8. You will receive power. How? Through the presence of the Spirit that I will send to you. Don't try to be my witnesses. Don't try to fulfill my mission without my presence. Moses prepares for the call of God by understanding God's presence. I don't know if, any, if this, the last part strikes anybody else as funny. The, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I'll admit the, the grammar here is, is kind of confusing and people are kind of torn on what the sign is. This will be a sign for you. What is it? Is this sign the burning bush, the fact that we're talking, or is the clause that follows it the sign, the fact that when they come out of Egypt, they will serve God on the mountain. It is kind of confusing. Um, but part of me thinks, if, as your Bible reads naturally, if, this is, if the sign is the fact that they will come out and serve God on the mountain, what kind of encouragement is this to Moses? Part of me thinks that he would, he would say, so I have to go do this really hard thing, and the sign that I will be able to do this really hard thing is that when I'm done doing the really hard thing, we'll all meet back right here and celebrate the fact that I did the really hard thing. Uh, okay, um, cool, got it. Uh, this, is, this is something that, that some people call a fulfillment sign. It, some signs produce faith. We'll see that later on. We're about to, other signs encor, encourage or require faith. That's the case here. It's not immediate proof that Moses will be successful. It's proof that God has thought it through even up to this point what will happen when they escape Egypt. But it's the, mainly, the, the main point, it's a prophetic sign that God speaks to Moses beforehand so that when it is fulfilled, like it is, if you read Exodus 19, Moses' faith in God will be strengthened, even to the point that will last 40 years in the wilderness. He understands God's presence with him. Let's continue. Verse 13 to 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You could do ten, a 10 week sermon series on, on what this means. Um, we're not. Uh, I just, in the context of the story, here's what I feel like, God, it, what, what's going on. Moses is saying, okay, okay, I, I'm not really that focused on how this is going to end. Okay, well, worship on the mountain. I'm worried about the beginning. If I go and tell these people that this God is talking to me, telling me to do this, they're going to say, 
How do we know? And one of the first questions you're going to say is, who is that God? What is his name? How do we even know that you know him? And God reveals his name to Moses in a way that he has not before. And I'll say this name is used before this point in Scripture. It's, it's in Genesis. But if you read Exodus, the beginning of Exodus 6, the text says that God revealed his name to Moses in a way that he, has no, he did not reveal it to the patriarchs before him. So how it was different, my gosh, you could, you could read three books a, a day and not be done for a month on what this actually means. All, all I know is that God specially reveals his name to Moses in a special way in this moment. And what is that name? I am who I am. You, you might know the, the word tetragrammaton, those four letters, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. Uh, and that has to do with the way the Hebrew vowel system works. But the whole point is that it is a form of the verb to be. I am. I am who I am. What does this mean? It means I am not like you. It means I exist outside of you. It, it means I exist outside of creation. It means I exist outside of time. My existence comes out of myself. I am the self-existent God, eternal and infinite. From beginning to end, I am. Everything else is created but I am not. And what we see here is that part of the preparation for the call of God in Moses' life is just to consider God's transcendence. He is completely other. I mean, this has everything to do with holiness, but transcendent. We are not like those Eastern religions that thinks God is in everything and God is everything and God is the sum total of everything. We believe that there is creation and then there, there is uncreation, uncreatedness. And only, the only thing that occupies this realm is God. He is completely transcendent. I am who I am. You know, grammatically speaking, it's one of the most simple sentences we could ever think of. Uh, there's, there's hardly a more elementary sentence. But does anyone actually understand all that it means? No. And it's it just kind of makes your mind explode. But Augustine wrote that God added the next line because he knew how mind-boggling the first one would be. And what does he say in, in verse 16? 15, I'm sorry. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, so that's something we can understand, right? That's, that, that's in the context of the story of what's been happening. And what does it teach us about God? That he is not only transcendent, but he is also imminent. Yes, he exists apart from us, outside of time and space, and that blows our mind, but he is thoroughly involved in time and space. He is the God with us and among us. He is Emmanuel. So we are not like the Eastern religions, but we are also not deists. We don't put God so high up in the sky that he cannot be involved in our matters. God is imminent. I mean, just think about the fact that he's revealing his proper name to Moses. 
You don't tell somebody your name unless you want this true personal relationship with them. Like he's, he's bringing them in closer to themselves, to himself. And just one little quick aside on the name of God. Are we supposed to call God Yahweh? Are we supposed to call him Jesus? Yes. Again, you could read till you die on this topic. But just consider Philippians 2, 9 to 11, that I'll read. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God knows the name I am blows our mind. And he knows that his character and nature is incomprehensible to us, which is why he descends to his people in the same way he descends to Moses. He descends to his people in the person of Jesus and makes God known to us. You think at the beginning of John, no one has seen God the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. In John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am in him and he is in me. We need no more imminent understanding and revelation of God than in Jesus Christ himself. So much to the point now that when we call in the name of God, we call in the name of Jesus. That is his name. If you don't believe me, just take Jesus' word. John 8 58 to 59, we won't read it, but just remember here, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And either he's a horrible grammatician or he's saying something that is so bold that we should perk our ears, right? And the religious leaders do. They try to stone him. Jesus is claiming the identity that God claims in Exodus 3. He is that person, God. So Moses prepares by considering God's transcendence, how he is high above everything else and unlike any other being in this world. But he also grasped God's imminence, that he's the God who draws near to us and descends to us, most notably in Jesus Christ. So God knows the beginning to end, and he retells in more detail of what will happen. In 16 to 22, here's the plan. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So originally God had said to Moses to go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel. Oh, also just a few more minor details here. Pharaoh's going to say no. And I mean, he's really going to say no. 
and I'll have to handle that. And lastly, you're going to take all the Egyptian stuff before you go. God doesn't say take all stuff. He says plunder them, which is a wartime word. And Moses is really starting to understand what God's calling him to do. This is war. This is spiritual war. And, and you're going to plunder them. Okay. Um, so what, what Moses has previously heard is that the people of Israel will be leaving. And he might have assumed that meant war. But here God solidifies that intuition. The stakes just got much higher. And Moses is still buckling under the pressure. God, I believe you're holy. I believe you're here and, and present. I'm pretty sure you're transcendent, but are you able? That's the question Moses has. Are you able? You say you have a mighty hand that can compel Pharaoh to release the people. Are you able? God, in his mercy, gives Moses these signs. Then Moses answered, but behold, verse 1, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He said, gladly. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God mercifully responds and gives these signs. And the first one's actually pretty funny because I see Moses freaking out and you can't take somebody who's freaking out by surprise, but God does that. It's, it's, it's the same as if your child is, is crying and you go in the bedroom and he says, Daddy, there's a monster in my closet. And you say, what, in this closet? No, see, there's no one. Ah! <laughs> I'm just kidding, son, sleep tight. Like, like it's, it really didn't do much to help Moses until he says, pick up the snake. And he picks it up, conquers his fear, picks it up and it turns back into a staff. And put your hand inside your coat. It turns leprous. And I know what leprosy looks like. My kids had impetigo this week. It's hard to get rid of. And, and God just does it again. It's, it's like a magic trick. But with medicine and with uh, antibacterial cream, our, uh, my kids still look like they have leprosy. They're not contagious anymore. And they're not even here this morning. So um, it's hard to get rid of this stuff. But God shows his power by doing this instantly. And the third one, the turning water into blood, which would become the first plague that, that he does, is just all signs to prepare God, uh, to prepare Moses for the call of God, to show him that he is able. So Moses prepares for the call of God by trusting God's power. That isn't it. I know, I know. You think Moses would be completely convinced by now. But what's he say to the Lord? Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech 
and a tongue. He must have been from Shelby. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and you will be, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. I love this part because Moses is asking for more help. And what does he ask? He, he asks for somebody who can speak better. And God says, what about your brother Aaron? And okay, well, what's Aaron's role going to be in this? Is he just, can, can he have it all? Or what's, what's his role going to be? Oh, well, you're just going to tell him what I say, and then he'll say it. And to me, this is just like a, like, you understand, like you think Aaron is going to have an easy job. He has the same job you have. Just communicate what I'm communicating to you. This has nothing to do with your ability. It has everything to do with my ability. But why does God do it? I mean, he's a little angry. I mean, it says that. It's anger kindled against Moses. Why does he do that? Because he's a gracious God. He's calling Moses to trust in his power, but he's also calling Moses to experience his grace. He doesn't need to do this. He could choose somebody else, but he shows him grace. He shows him grace in the same way he shows all sinners grace. I mean, maybe you feel the call of God in your life to do something, and and, and you're arguing with God and, and, and you're pushing back saying, God, I, I don't know how to speak well. I, I'm not very good at persuading anybody. I, I don't have the accolades or the education. And God should completely consume you. He should. How, who do we think we are to talk back to the God of the universe? To break his law, to transgress his covenant. But we see here God's grace. And we see in the cross God's grace most visibly displayed. The last thing that God does to prepare Moses for this call. We see in these strange verses that end chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And then the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint 
uh, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did this this sign in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Moses asked for permission to go see his brothers, right? It seems like he's finally surrendered to the call. He takes his family, he takes his staff, and then he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, if you don't let my firstborn son go, God will kill your firstborn son. Like, he is serious. He means serious business. And Moses should know that just from that statement, but he doesn't take it seriously enough. How do I know? He has not circumcised his son, Gershom. You may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, Genesis 17 says it's a really big deal. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And for Moses to go try to surrender to the call of God without even thinking about the most basic thing that made you a person of God, this sign of the covenant uh, being circumcision, you would, you would think he would have thought this through. And this is, this is where on Mother's Day, I say thank you for godly mothers. Thank you. Because you saw how Moses' mother preserved his life, you know, by, by hiding him from, from Pharaoh's people who were busting down doors and taking babies and killing them. And now you see Moses' wife saving her son. The text here is a little ambiguous of who was going to be killed. Was it Moses or Gershom? And honestly, I have no idea. All I know is that Moses had not submitted to this covenantal rite of circumcision. And, and Gershom's mother, Moses' wife, saved someone's life that day. Saved his life. You think, like, what's going on here? What's going on here? God, you told me that it would be hard, and like Pharaoh would, would it would be hard to get Pharaoh to let people go, but you're, you, you're making it harder on me. And it's here where we realize the call of God is also and mainly a call to holiness. Moses will be great. He will be one of the top five, if not top three, people in the Bible that we remember for all time. But the call of God is not a call to greatness. It's a call to holiness. And our key qualification for ministry is not our eloquence. It's not our persuasiveness. It is our holiness. And Moses had not thought this through. He had encountered God's holiness, but he had not taken that in for himself to prepare for the work that the Lord had called him to. The call of God to the work of God, to fulfill the mission of God, begins and ends with the call of God to know God, to know who he is, to encounter his holiness, to understand his presence, to consider his transcendence, to grasp his imminence, and... Trust his power, right? To experience his grace. But all this falls short if we don't prioritize our own holiness. 
Don't expect God to use you in his plans if you don't prioritize your own holiness. So how does God shape his servants to carry out his call? By making sure his servants know who he is. Do you know who he is this morning? Have you considered and grasped and and trusted in all these ways? And at the end of that, have you pursued and prioritized your own holiness? What would that look like in your life? What could God do through you if you did these things? Make sure you know God and make sure God works in you. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.